Coming to you from somewhere between Koreatown and Silver Lake, Los Angeles, California, I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Today I'm speaking with Amelia Gray. She's the author of a bunch of books and more on the way, uh, including AMPM, Museum of the Weird, Threats, and the newest collection, Gutshot. And this is a book, Gutshot. It's a collection of very short pieces of fiction, not in the realm quite of flash fiction, I would say, though people disagree about this all the time. But it encapsulates a lot of what I've enjoyed about Amelia's writing over the years. There's the grotesque, there is the funny, which I I think your humor is not often, it's not remarked upon often enough. There's the speculative, there's more, most of all, I get a sense from Gutshot of her view of America, and it's a distinctive America, and it's it's an America I want to learn more about. I mean, first of all, biographically, Amelia, what is your America? You're from Arizona, right? I am, from Tucson, Arizona. Uh, Is, 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 Is Arizona weird? Of course, yeah. Arizona is very weird. It's uh, Tucson is a small, uh, a relatively small town uh, compared to Los Angeles. Certainly, it's got a little bit of border town in it. Uh, it's it's got people coming from uh, all all sorts of strange places. It's got snowbirds coming in for the winter and then vanishing without a trace. Uh, it's it used to be in the I know that in the fifties and sixties it actually used to be where runaways would would land and end up and so you would get some it's like uh, the Portland of its time. Oh indeed. Mm. Yes. Yes. And now it's it does have that Portland feel. Um, it's got some it's got a good punk scene and a good punk lit scene. Uh, but I'd say it's like a more dried out, deranged Portland. <laughs> But dried out and that's a better one for material. I mean, I growing up there, so. did you know it was weird? Like, are you like, what's this is a weird place I'm growing up in, or just this is the place? That's oh, all. Oh yeah, no, I had no frame of reference. I we did move to um, we moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, when I was seven, and then came back to Tucson at four, when I was fourteen. So, so I did have a sense of of that it was a different place. It was a strange place, but. It, and then I would always dream about Tucson. It would seem kind of magical in the way that the places where we grow up seem kind of kind of strange and magic. They all have a faint unreality to them because we were kids there? Or? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Because we're, nothing seems real when you're a kid or everything seems real, even stuff you make up? Right. I remember seeing a tree in my front yard of my parents' house that was... It was it was green from far away, and then close up it was purple and and golden. I was like, what on earth kind of world is this in which we live? This yes, is great. I've got to find out more about this world. I mean, there's an image from Gutshot. I, you got me thinking when you described Tucson a bit about the sort of vast, dry landscape, road, and there's a, there's a particular description I liked of uh, I believe it was a Camaro IROC Z 1986, uh, as dirty as the road itself. Is that is that the kind of thing you see in Tucson to this day? Oh, sure, of course. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That 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 story, uh, go go for it and raise hell, is uh, takes place in Raton Pass, mm-hmm. which is north uh, New Mexico. Um, as you're leaving, as you're leaving Taos, or you can get out of there from from Albuquerque or Santa Fe. You can end up in Raton, and it's if you're going to to um, Oklahoma mm-hmm. for some reason. And uh, it has a very, it has a very, um, it has a very Tucson feel. I actually was first in Raton. Uh, we were taking a family driving vacation across the country. I believe I was, you know, eight or nine. We ended up in this horrifying 
a motel with a door that did not lock, and my poor dad, who'd driven all... It didn't have a lock, or it couldn't lock? Uh, If it had a lock, the lock had been repurposed to a place where it couldn't be called a lock anymore. (laughs) It's one of those, like, flat metal things where it's like there was something there. Yeah, yeah, something used to be here that could protect us, but no longer. (laughs) Yeah, my poor poor dad had to stay up all night just watching the door. I think he had, like, a chair propped up against it, and then we just drove the whole day the next day, too. Raton was... Raton's a weird place. It's the, one of the parts of America nobody intends to end up, but they do. Yeah, yeah. A couple things go wrong. Maybe you get, like, kicked off a Greyhound bus <laughs> and, like, you get stuck. I actually worked for Greyhound for a long oh, for a uh, long time on customer service. Oh, you were? How did you... Did you fall into that, or was this a specific... Was Greyhound a, no, your goal for that period? It was, like, a career goal. I really? wanted... <laughs> no, I, well, I wanted free bus tickets, so uh, that was... It was a, a smart and easy way to get it. What's, uh, that, what's their policy or was at the time you were there? Oh, I believe that you could get a discount or a pretty steep discount based on certain routes. And they're already kind of cheap. Oh, so. indeed. Yes. yes. What, were you, what were you paying? Do you remember what you paid for like a long haul? Did you do a long haul on this uh, uh, ticket system? I did. Uh, I did Tucson to Sacramento. Mm. Yeah, which was... It had a, to be an interesting crowd on that oh, indeed. line. Yeah, and I've done... I did Tucson to Vegas a couple times too. Uh, Sacramento was a 30-hour... Yes, and bathroom on board. Uh, yes, although I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> there was a, uh, they would you take a couple breaks. You'd stop right. in Blythe, which is a great, great name for a great city. Uh, <laughs> and actually, my very first, uh, my very first stop or experience with Los Angeles happened on one of those Greyhound trips in the Los Angeles. Uh, uh, Los Angeles Port Authority or wherever the oh, yeah down there it pulls up. I think so. Oh, I'm trying to remember now. Actually, so it didn't come in Union Station. You, you didn't get it that. Would. Yeah, yeah. It's strange. <laughs> there will be no Art Deco for the Greyhound no, passengers. No, that because that would have been great. No, but I remember this really strange, scary Greyhound experience. I mean, yeah. they all seem. I've, I haven't been on one. It does seem like. Tell me, is this true, or is this just a stereotype? You don't really understand America unless you've taken a Greyhound ride. I mean, you understand a, a, a bigger stripe of the fruit stripe gum that is America. <laughs> it's, nice yeah. stripes, indeed. <laughs> uh, I, I've talked to some really interesting, really interesting people um, of all ages and types, and, and some really scary people, uh, <laughs> for sure, on the old Greyhound bus. But, uh, yeah. I don't, I don't think you mentioned the Greyhound bus by name, but it's this is a, a type of conveyance involved in at least one of the gutshot stories. Yes, I remember a bus being described as smelling like garbage wrapped inside wet garbage. Oh, yeah. Do you have a source for that? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm going to remember that always as a description of a smell, but what the process of that cohering in your mind, that smell image. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you get a smell. That was in That's a nice story, um, Western Passage. And you get smells like that with peop- when people have been in just a closed place for, for days. And, you know, those buses would go. I never... So the longest route I took was Tucson to Sacramento, which is long, but it's no, you know, Seattle to New Orleans, which some people I knew... Like, I would run into people doing that, or like Miami to Los Angeles, mm-hmm. or in kind of similar... I've done a, Amtrak a couple of times, and you get this kind of similar idea. It's just that very specific... You know, when you've been in a pair of blue jeans for mm. like three days, you know, and life is not great. Oh <laughs> and, yeah, it's a it's a it's a dis- very distinctive um, 
kind of odor and attitude that you get at that at that point. A friend was telling me about a similar trip he did on a Greyhound bus one time, and he said it was so long that at first I, he tried to you know, wear the headphones, read the book, do his own thing, be in his own world, but at a certain point you just have to submit to the wider bus culture. You can't mm-hmm. stay shut in. I, I would guess that was your experience, too? Oh, for sure. It's mm. bus law. Yeah. When, does, when does it happen? When, does the, when, do, <laughs> when do you break down and just... I feel like submission is such yeah. a big part of the bus riding experience mm-hmm. across America. You just have to give up and yeah, give in. give in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would say it's a percentage of trip time. Mm-hmm. It sort of doesn't matter how long the trip is, but at some point you're holding somebody's baby or you're, you know, you're talking and you're like giving them advice on like getting clean or like where to stop getting clean or like where you know I, I met this guy going to Vegas who's like I'm gonna I'm gonna go into into bullhead I'm gonna gamble I'm gonna make enough to get a, another hotel room and then I'm gonna stay and I'm gonna just keep doubling down uh, and we were like working on like investment strategies that would make it more likely that even if he lost he would not you know, be in big trouble, you know, with his lodging situation, like that, that kind of, that kind of thing. Yeah. I think everybody has a plan in that sense. When you're in a context like that, a long haul bus trip, everybody's got, they know what, no matter how cockeyed it might be, they have a sense of this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm going to do this. And then this, and this is how it's going to go, whether it goes that way or not. Is that true? Oh yeah. Everyone has a plan. And it kind of, it kind of translates to, uh, outside the bus or train too. Like we all have a plan and they're not that different inside the Greyhound and outside. Indeed. Yeah. It just kind of scales in a different, different way. How much of the dialogue you were witness to or a participant in on the Greyhound bus informs the dialogue you hear in, in the stories of Gutshot? Um, so some of it, some of it makes it in. I get, uh, some of the people I talk to on, on those buses kind of made it into Western Passage, um, with that kind of, everyone's got, everyone's got their, their mind on a plan and, and, and the speaker also has her mind on a plan and, you know, it's, it's, it seeps in and sinks in. I, I grew up um, pretty religious, and so I get like the cadence of, of kind of religious texts and songs and sermons, and so you know that that seeps in. Yeah. We talk about your America. I, you say you grew up religious. I wonder, do you, do you see this as a as a as religious a country as the sort of stereotype has it around the world? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I I would say so. I would say it's it's um. I mean, America is very proudly contradictory, you know, the old melting pot. And there's not much invocation of religion directly in the stories of Gutshot, is there? I would say maybe not. Uh, there are there are different ideas which could be attributed to such, like a, an idea that that you're a pebble in a stream and the stream flows around you is. You know, something something you could pick up on your first day in like a meditation, Buddhist meditation class kind of thing. Um, so that's kind of comes in. I wouldn't say I like like come in with big, you know, religious ideas in gut shot, but it's because I I sort of don't have any myself. I have I have vague religious clouds of thought that 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 bleed into one another. Right. I mean, it's we could say maybe your interest might be more in just the beliefs people strongly hold. We don't have to say religion, do we? Mm, I, yeah, I think that's very accurate. It's belief structures, uh, which which can be religious or can be strikingly secular or a mix of both. Uh, uh, I, I would say are a big part of of 
of all of those stories. I believe that's the first story in Gutshot. I've heard you discuss it elsewhere as well, but this is the central couple is they, they have every one of the sort of correct American urban center 21st century middle to upper middle class beliefs about the, the food they eat and, and the, the environmental concerns that they must act upon and, and all that and what they consume. But as, as I believe you put it in a different interview, they also hire a girl to live in the, the ducts of a house for a sec, as a sex thing. Uh, I mean, when you, that's, that's, to my mind, is one of your sort of speculative stories. That's how I would class it. But when you're speculating on a scenario like that, there's it, hiring somebody to live in the ducts of your house is itself an interesting scenario. But did you, did you sort of, how to put this, did you have the personalities first? Like, are the personalities of the people involved the, the essential part for you? Like, well, we need these, we need these, uh, we need these conscious consuming vegans. Mm-hmm. Were they a part of it? Were they first or second? I guess, were, were the ducks first or the vegans yeah. first? <laughs> that's really, that's a good question. Because I think it could go either way. Uh, in my case, it was for that story, which is House Heart. It was um, it was personality second because first I was thinking about different uh, different stories I'd heard about people, and weirdly they were often women getting stuck in chimneys or ductwork, and and you know it's it, you get you get in there for various re- one reason or another, but um, it's usually usually ends pretty badly, uh, and then wondering what would cause. Uh, what would cause a person to go in there sober and willing or willing enough and then when I started thinking about that I became kind of preoccupied with with the broader sense of like who who would encourage it or reward it or you know because in the end the the girl who goes in there is uh, I, I kind of give her very simple like money based motivations she's a very practical character um, you know, and she's in there as kind of the, she's like an innocent in this in the story, and 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 the people who, uh, kind of fost like fostered her in the home and like invited her in and made it a sex thing, like those people become, uh, you know, the interesting people, and then they and then from there I built up this this i this idea like okay well, so I don't want these people to be patently evil or strange and wouldn't it be interesting if they're actually very very normal you know and they end up being a little like conky like (laughs) hyper normal like like so um like satirically obsessed with um you know with locally made fair traded things i hope we get those csa boxes is that what they're called the vegetables oh yeah you get the csa they'd be getting the csa and they would be complaining that it didn't have raw cane sugar or whatever (laughs) you know um (laughs) It's it's a type of speculative story that is different from the other writers of that kind I read. I mean, I, I like to read Jorge Luis Borges, as pretty much everyone does, so readers will know what I'm talking about when I say in his stories. The speculation is like, what if what if a guy could remember everything that he ever experienced? What would the experience of that be like? Or what if there was a point in an attic where you could see all other parts of the world? What What would that experience be like? His concern is here's a weird thing uh, here's a cool thing what would the experience of that thing be yours it tends to be more here's something here's a weird thing someone would do what kind of person does that yeah that's 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 interesting as a distinction I think that's tr- I think that's true uh, I do like to think about systems and the way the way people interact with the world which ends up becoming about a lot about people um, yeah I wouldn't say that's that's always true yeah. um, 
because I, I think it's a, I think you're right in saying that it kind of comes from a similar mode of like like here's a strange thing like how do we interact with how how would someone interact how would someone that we might call normal interact with that and then okay well let's let's make them actually not be normal or let's make the situation not be more normal kind of skew it one way or another and then see what happens i mean like do you get the do you get these moments or do, is this the kind of line of thought you have where you read say the news you see a story about you know another guy in austria who's been raising kids in captivity without light for 30 years and they've all been his sex slaves i mean do you think and i mean i'm, I'm not making this up this is the kind of story you hear occasionally do you think what kind of what kind of guy is that? <laughs> sure, of other course. Than, other than crazy? Sure. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that 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 a lot of my work comes out of that curiosity. That and I think that curiosity is very common. Yeah. You know, that's I, why they, I mean they get clicks. Yeah. They get a lot of clicks. Oh, indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. People want to see how how far away they are from this. They want to they want to say like, oh, this person's a a monster, which they they are, but the idea, the whole idea of, of someone being a monster, or ev- the idea of evil, even is is really interesting. It really parcels that person a- away from the rest of us because we are very normal. And um, you know, I Joyce Carol Oates wrote a story, um, "Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been?" based off of a, actually a serial killer who is in Tucson. So um, it seems like it could be sort of serial killer country. Is it? Is it? Yeah. Or have there been many? I mean, there, I, I, there have been some. I wouldn't say that there's been disproportionately ma- many. But when Tucson was more of a, a runaway uh, location, and there are these big like drags uh, of, of road like Grant and Speedway and Broadway, where just kind of like a bunch of kids hanging out who don't really have any accountability. Like you, you. You run into like, like people who make great art. You 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 find people who are really creative and curious, and you also find like the fringy like right. crazy dudes who'll take you out in the desert. You know. Yes, they, those those groups tend to. They're not related, but they come together. So usually. Yeah, I mean always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. It's a like, you know you get like Manson hanging out around artists and right. kind of being on the fringe of that. Yeah. So when you have sort of the Mansons of the world and think what you know who could do the who could do the act this person did what kind of person is that is it is the task to sort of get yourself as close as possible to their psychological space and to just measure the actual distance between you and them to try to is there a sense of trying to minimize that distance like I can only understand this person doing this real or uh this imaginative strange thing if I get close to them if I make them close to me you know what I mean yes I do uh, I, I I do a little bit of of both because in Western Passage or in House Heart you get the you're you're in the mind of the perpetrator of, of you know of strangeness or of violence or potential violence or um, you know uh, and, and in that in those stories I do try to try to get very close and to see where the similarities are between you know between what I would say is normal and what I would say is not as abnormal and then uh but I do have stories like uh my story away from which used to be called the victim series um is about a a a killer in Ohio and I didn't I I sort of was at a point that I'm that I'm at now where like I don't want to get into that guy's head and I don't really 
uh, it's like I'm annoyed at him and and just like who fucking cares? You know, it's a it's a it's a it's a sociopathic psychopathic murderer. And and the story, the interesting part is these women. You know, um, like what's what the innocent and 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 in that in the Ohio case, the the women who were killed there, uh, you know, there were themselves kind of part of a fringe society that many of them were were drug users and and sex workers and and as such uh the story really gets you know um like pushed to the side like there are many many uh most of them were were black women and and the idea is like oh well you know they they were out there you know they were working this is what they were doing this is what they're taking and and it's like it's, you know that's that's it's it's such a as a as a writer, um, my curiosity goes to to their experience before before his. In that case, but it goes to somebody's experience. Right. Yeah, sooner right. or later, there's some person that you're. That there's there's always going to be a person, and I, I get what you mean. It's often it's not even somebody in these stories you hear. It's it's somebody not even as major as the victims. It's not the killer. It's not the victims. It's some you know third party involved that I get curious about. You know, who's you know who's the Cato Kalin of this story? Right, you know, you right. wonder. Or the or the eleven people who who listened to or watched Kitty Genovese get murdered. Those you people know? too. I feel like I haven't heard a lot of follow up with them. Yeah. I mean, they are probably all dead, but still. Sure, probably. Or or yeah, maybe they're probably some of them are probably pretty old. It's probably right a toddler or something that was there, and now they're in the middle aged. But I'll check on that right as soon as we're done with with talking. But I. I mentioned earlier that the book, I think, showcases the humor of your writing, or at least the humor that that strikes me the most in your writing. I mean, I think of one story we referenced earlier without naming. I think there's this very unhealthy mother-daughter relationship, and the mother thinks or says that, well, compared to some cultures, there are cultures where the mother and the daughter are perpetually tied together by a rope, and only re- the daughter's only released for the carnal act. Yeah, right. Compared to that, we're strangers, and that was the biggest laugh out. The words "the carnal act" were the biggest <laughs> laugh out loud line for me in the book. But there were others. I mean, they, it came actually laughing out loud came every few pages. It's not a long book, but I, I, a lot of laughs in it. I feel like people though haven't foregrounded that about your writing that it is funny and i but i it makes sense i mean there's not a lot of jokes in your writing i find and but jokes are not usually what make me laugh it has to almost not be a joke in general in life before i laugh at it when what what do you find funny Mm. uh i find the absurd funny i find uh that i'm super dark usually i uh Something like uh, like a movie like Dogtooth is sure. is pretty pretty freaking funny or like uh, was was binge watching BoJack Horseman which is a I've heard that's come a long way since the first season Oh yes yeah it's a it's a good uh, it's become a pretty good LA narrative that is uh, you know not it, it, I don't think I laughed out loud very often during it but it's it's so like funny and good. Your mind goes back to parts of it over yeah. and over. It's as good as laughing, in a way. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's very close to laughter. <laughs> you, you mentioned, if you're alone, it's hard to it's hard to laugh when you're alone. I mean, it's a, it's a very social thing, but, you know, occasionally a book will make me laugh. You know, lines about the carnal act will make me laugh. Oh, but, what I was going to say is, you, you mentioned the movie Dogtooth, uh, by a Greek director whose name I don't, I, I forget, but really could never pronounce anyway, so it's, Dogtooth is the, the word to take away. He also had a, he, he had a, I haven't seen that, I've seen the, his follow-up movie, Alps, which I liked very much, uh, about 
a team, this is actually, I hadn't thought about it in this way, but it's about a team of people who hire themselves out to stand in for family's dead relatives. Like if, if a family's, if the daughter dies, they'll hire one of the Alps. They're each named after one of the Alps to to sit at the dinner table and just pretend to be the daughter, but they're never an age match or even a sex match sometimes. It's just somebody who's... And it's so compelling, and it's just... It's so absurd, and yet the concept is so compellingly executed. Have you seen this film? I haven't. No, uh, it I sounds saw... like a story you could write, actually, Indeed. so go back and make it yourself. No, I will. <laughs> or you, you could write, actually, the American uh, <laughs> transplantation of Alps, because this one's also in Greece still. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, no, I, I love his work. I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare touch it. It's not uh, even Tucson. Make make a new thing of it. That's all. <laughs> right. Lease adaptation. I mean, what you mentioned Greece. I know you you're working on a book now dealing with Greece. Are you not? Partly. Yes. Mm, why why Greece? Uh, well, it was where my character happened to be. It's actually historical fiction, uh, and I'm I'm nervous about talking about too much of it yeah. because I'm in that this like wasteland of editing where I've been ooh, editing for maybe oh god six hard editing no creation for six months and it's a really weird desert to be in but I well, yeah don't talk about that book talk about Greece I mean looking into it is it I think the guy's the director's name is something Lanthimos so yes. well, his his movies I mean is there did you find anything in Anything else culturally in Greece that appealed to your sense of absurdity in the way that his work does? Is there a is there a culture of absurdity there at all? <laughs> That's a very good question. I, uh, I I I I don't know the I don't know that I have found precisely absurdity in Greece, but you do you know you get a sense of of the the, the age of the culture there um, and a sense of. A very broad s- scope and myth and and things like that and and myth is is in a way you could you could read myths as being very absurd. I've I've been in what I'm working on, which I can I will talk about a little bit. I am you know recasting some of these myths to um, to suit my own tastes and you know Eurydice uh, walking very quietly on purpose because she doesn't really want to leave the underworld and um, you, you know it just. The the, the 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 you could read myths as straight. You could read them as lessons. You could read them as history. But you can also read them as very strange, absurd, <laughs> you know, stories where where you know somebody is happening along a dale and someone is 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 behaving in a way that is prideful or something. And then the stranger that sees them happens to be a god with you know ultimate powers to destroy them. And that's a very strange idea. But as you say, you can read it so many ways. That maybe is why they've endured. Just because they're a bit of a Rorschach blot to people, mm. you, however you want to use them, have at it. It's so interesting because my uh, my boyfriend's daughter, she's six, and she's been reading a, a child's uh, version of the Odyssey. And she's she's obsessed with it in a way that I that I've never seen her get into to any anything you know and she watches the you know the bubble guppies and that's <laughs> that's a very uh, you know <laughs> intricate that sounds like something that kids would love good lord bubble guppies um, no but yeah she's she you know she'll stay up way past her bedtime and come out you know saying I. Like Dad, I can't, I can't go to sleep yet because he just went into the land of the dead and he saw his mom and dad there, and it's like, you know, this is this is 
you know, I don't know what it is about it that makes yeah. it an enduring story. Because, and we're, you know, she's presented like hundreds and hundreds of stories uh, every week that are fresh to her. She's given Star Wars, and she's, you know, she gets Inside Out, and and she gets all the bubble guppies, and and yet. You know, Do you know how many bubble guppies there are? Are there a group I feel of like guppies? There are at least 500 oh, okay. freaking bubble guppies. Yes. <laughs> All merchandisable, I'm sure. Oh, indeed. Yeah. No, she was she was really into the into the My Little Ponies. I think she may still be. Um, and yet, you, and yet, you get this this myth that um, that's for some reason just kind of captures her her mind and heart and and it's so cool to see you know if it beats star wars it's powerful there's something encouraging about that though it's hard to say what it is exactly (laughs) well i mean what i like is because i i never i didn't have the odyssey until i was kind of dragged through it in in high school (laughs) and so i know i i kind of came to it uh hating it in in that's high school yeah right you hate everything it's a drag you should only you should only teach and learn really simple easy to digest you know 1984 kind of fight club kind of things right, like that. Sure. And you're like oh yeah this is great this is so cool and you know leave the leave the poor classics you know alone until you yeah, know they'll be okay they'll be fine they'll they teach will, fight club keep it alive they will endure yeah no I, I i wish that i had had hit stuff like wuthering heights and because i i I talk to people who have this this abiding love for the British Isles, and it's just like, man, I missed it because I <laughs> is came. Is it in. always Jane Austen related? And it's is it always Bronte related? Is it always? I'm learning. What else do there's? What else do they read besides those? I read. Those? Uh, I read James Joyce too early, and um, and I, I had a really wonderful English teacher um, uh, back back then. A couple of them actually, and so it's not their fault. It, they're they're well meaning and trying to trying to show us you know kids the the kind of stuff that they loved that that's endured for them that's given them comfort but we're just assholes like ah, teenagers ah, are assholes and it's like oh know, portrait for, of force somebody to stay in a building all day that's how they're gonna that you should know this more than anybody it's like getting locked in a duct you know you're, you're not you know you didn't want you kind of well you knew that it you knew you had to go to high school uh-huh. But it still feels like confinement, and you're going to do anything you can to work out a system to live within it. But you're not going to be happy about it, no. like much like the girl in the duct. Much like the girl in the duct. Work. Yeah, that's very accurate. That's accurate, and it was very accurate to the experience of being in algebra two trigonometry summer school in uh, Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> you occasionally get some food pushed through the grating, and lucky, that's yeah. 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 That's, at least you only had four years of it. You know, oh Lord knows what became of uh, the girl in the grate. <laughs> but what? What I wanted to get at there is that were there any were there any particular sort of particular books or stories in your childhood reading material that just stand out for their sheer like how did I come across that why did what did I latch on to you know how you can latch on to something strange or artful and in crap you know you you mentioned reading a lot of in another interview pulp mystery novels like were there are there fragments that stick with you of just this sort of massive verbiage that I think a lot of us readerly kids just plowed through because we don't really discriminate for quality at that age but we do discriminate for viscerality in some sense I mean do you remember anything I remember skimming every single New Yorker uh, short story for the sexy parts. Every, as they came out, every as single one. Uh, or you just read the collected New Yorker short stories. No, no, as they came out, ah, yeah. For the sexy parts. Oh yes. At what age? Oh God, I must have been ten. Because <laughs> well, a ten-year-old's idea of what's sexy is always kind of askew, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Between that and the internet, 
uh, at that time. It was a it was a weird, strange time. Sure. Yeah. No, I I I remember all of that. I accidentally giving myself a very deep, like modern, like sh- American short story education. At looking the time. for the sexy part. Just looking for sex most of the time. Yeah. Or, like careers have been built on less. <laughs> or um. I remember uh, The World According to Garp on mm-hmm. my parents' bookshelf, Many oh, Sexy Parts, uh, In Watermelon Sugar, Brodigan, uh, good, some good sexy parts. And, uh, and was that also a parental bookshelf book? Yes, for sure. So, yeah. These are the books, These are the, this is what I'm talking about, the things that go into your consciousness in childhood mm-hmm. or subconscious, because, you know, parents always have bookshelves full of books that never move, and you wonder how... They got there because oftentimes they're not reflective of the parents as you know them currently. It's like, when were you reading this book? I mean, clearly you haven't touched it in 20 years, but like, I picked it up because I've seen the spine every day of my life so far, and I've found something interesting in there, whether it's a 10-year-old's idea of sexiness or something that's strange and that I, that hints to me there's some say, more strange stuff to be found on this bookshelf. You know what I mean? Yes, of course, yeah. I, I mean, I've... The books... The books on their shelves, Brodigan and Vonnegut and Irving and uh, and Joyce Carol Oates, or, were just kind of accidentally like uploaded into my formative, you know, memory. And Did you ever talk to them uh, about these books? Um, I I haven't actually. That's funny. They they the bulk of the books were engineering books or art books. Um, they both they my mom's got an MFA in visual art and. Uh, they both have BAs in visual art, and my dad went on to, to go through engineering school, and so 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 yeah, the bulk, the big heavy textbooks were those, but then you'd get these these lovely like '70s colored spines of uh, you know accidentally like really like hilarious or formative or you know right. like Tom Robbins kind of stuff. It's just it's like wow, I didn't know that books could do this. This is cool. All those parts mixed together in your head as you grow up, and then suddenly you, you look inside your mind and what you have, but you know, it's not necessarily recognizable, all those books, but they're, all, they're in there somehow and somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, strange, they fold in with your, with your memories when you think about book, the books that you re- happened upon. Or, you know, reading when I was in high school, which was still pretty, um, like, mushy-brained formative i was i found a whole shirley jackson shelf and and right. tore through it you know and yeah I was, I was thinking of shirley jackson when i was reading your story in gutshot about the um, specifically the the competition uh, where, where one uh, one dead person gets resurrected every year oh, yeah. and you the idea is to display your affection to the greatest possible extent i mean that's i don't know how much how, how deep Everybody reads the lottery. How deep into Shirley Jackson did you go? Oh, pretty deep. Pretty deep. What do you find when you go deeper than the lottery, by the way? I feel like a lot oh, of people yeah. have only read the lottery. Uh, you get uh, you get a lot of... She was writing during a time when you could place short stories and things like Harper's Bazaar and uh, in addition to the usual, like, places and that you, you know, Esquire and Playboy and... Um, you know, you could do, a, I, th- I think she would get stories into like Women's Wear Daily or, or Strange Places. A couple in like 17. Is there still a Women's Wear Daily and are they still running short stories? They sell it for 10 cents at the grocery store and it's no mostly, no, it's mostly weight loss tips and, and ways to hold pants in front of your body that make your pants look large and your body look very small. But when you need to take that specific photo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is often, apparently. But, um. Well, Jared from Subway's gone, so they're going to need a new mascot that does that. Indeed. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so you get, so she was, she was a really interesting person 
uh, and an interesting character and uh, and she she was a housewife and and wrote these stories that were so strange and and a lot of like fantasies about housewives murdering their husbands <laughs> and um, the grotesque was present indeed yeah it was uh, the grotesque was present the like myster- quiet mysteriousness I mean I, f- I felt a lot of like um, you know, I've read like Murakami short stories where he's he's kind of doing a, a thing that she would do, where where you've got you know characters following other characters in silence, and then maybe they're ghosts, or maybe they're maybe they're the same person. And um, is it all of a piece with the lottery? Like, is that a representation of her work? I think that's it's accurate. Yeah, because you get uh, you get a voice of of people talking quite reasonably, and you get this kind of society that you learn the rules of pretty fast a lot of them are a lot of her stories are are closer to kind of like real society i mean the longer books are not they have their own worlds and and place is a big part um like i guess like in the lottery but um yeah you get a you get this kind of eeriness but it's very very distinctly placed in actual america it was it was i think the kind of thing that if you just opened up if a woman uh, like opened up harper's bazaar and read it it would be like she was reading her own life except with with like one little yeah. horrifying detail it's skew. hard to imagine in the world of today that how you know housewife sitting down with harper's bazaar and opening up a shirley jackson story yeah. with the level of grimness that that would have i mean yeah. did i don't know how much you've read about shirley jackson but did you was she sort of a diagnoser of America's ills in her own sort of mission or I feel like that's how she gets regarded now as she she's one of these mid-century writers who uh, uh, indicted the conformity of America or what have you I mean was that is that accurate to your reading of her work she uh, from uh, I'm not I'm not a, a expert expert on her but I do know that she I mean she wrote in that way and was interested in that that kind of thing she she got pushed aside a lot as a woman and you know as a woman not living in new york which is a big thing at the time and you know a lot of her she just had a a a new posthumous collection out because they found more of her stories like in a barn you know (laughs) just somehow it seems suitable that that's where they found them in a barn yeah i know that a friend a friend of a friend supposedly has a small piece of her bone bones like after she died she wanted little bits of her bones to be carried along with her friends which i think is so cool the point i want to make though or the question i want to ask is that i feel like i don't get a sense that okay i guess some background for example what there's a few comparisons that a lot of people make when they talk about your writing one of them is often david lynch uh because of the grotesqueness i suppose and the way that he puts the setting he puts it in this like thorough americanness of so much of his work and the thorough grotesquerie brought together i remember actually uh reading it was a david foster wallace article on david lynch from the 90s and he's describing how david lynch his characters are the same people you would meet in a bus station in the middle of the night, and his words were grotesque, enfeebled, flamboyantly unappealing, and freighted with a woe out of proportion to all evident circumstances. Wow. I feel like you write characters that are sometimes like that. Yeah. Do you think so? Oh, 
I mean, I aspire to that. <laughs> That's a cool quote, too. <laughs> but you you have a lot of the grotesque, the enfeebled, uh-huh. freighted with woe. These yeah. these are not, I'm not saying these are your people, but you use these people, yes? Yeah, yeah. I I have, uh, they if, if they have, if they're imbued with woe, they're not necessarily freighted by it. <laughs> right. Just only, only imbued, so there is a difference there. Right, they're kind of, they're steeped in it in a way that they're, my characters are usually... Um, I'm thinking if this is true. I think it's true. I mean, they're they're usually kind of riding the sea that they're they think that they're immune to, but they never really are. Right? Yeah, they have the belief though, mm-hmm. the strongly held belief, yeah. the almost religious belief. But I was uh, going elsewhere with that David Lynch thing because he's. I think a lot of even fans of his read. They'll see a movie of his like Blue Velvet, and they'll read it. I think not necessarily justifiably as being an indictment of American suburbia or, you know, this is an exposure of uh, mid-century American conformism and how it inevitably leads to severed ears covered in ants or what have you, you know, there's a lot of willingness to see that, but uh, you know, there's there's that element of his work, maybe. There's the Shirley Jackson, and maybe what she has to, to diagnose, to indict. I feel like you are not indicting or diagnosing specifically anything about America. You're not. You're not pointing out faults, right? I would say not. I. I well, sometimes I have. Uh, I. I guess when I'm pursuing ideas that, I guess I mean to say the close I get, the closest that I get to in indictment is in indicting maybe. Um, faults of personality, faults of like very, you know, thinking of, and that just comes from thinking about my own way of thinking and, uh, and, uh, finding fault in, in it. Like, you know, taking the idea that you, you have to live in the moment to be truly happy and then pursuing that to an <laughs> absurd end, which, yeah. you know, um, the idea of living in the moment is so, um, is so comforting to me, uh, especially in, in hard times. Uh, but then I, I like to think of, I like to kind of play with that idea and think about, well, where, where is this idea that I hold really dear and, and, uh, where does that fail? Um, right. So in that sense, I'm, if I'm, I'm, I'm often working things out in my own mind and it ends up becoming a very kind of personal back and forth. Do you have any sort of favorite personality faults to think or write about <laughs> what do you mean well, most interesting i mean like we all I, I feel like i can i'm trying to think of an example of my own because you can there's a lot of them you can think of you know you, you'll see them exemplified in other people or if i see them in myself uh-huh. and they're interesting to think about the consequences of you know what actually uh-huh. what is a personality fault and what uh where, where do we draw the line between a faulty personality and not a faulty personality? Like, fault and a benefit. Yeah. It's, yeah. Do, so are there favorite dysfunctions to the, that, you, that you think about or what did you want to put into characters that you find yourself wanting to make a character that has? Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I understand. It's, um, I, I think a lot about myself and so I think, I think a lot about self-centeredness <laughs> and, uh, and kind of a, kind of a gossipy sense or... Uh, I think a lot about uh, like a personal megalomania, uh, that a, a desire to change culture that kind of goes beyond the scope of, of being a good person, <laughs> um, which is I I I work very hard to not possess these things, but I think that's a it's it's hard to be a fiction writer because you the uh, it's hard to be a fiction writer and not 
have a sense of megalomania. Right, you know, you are making worlds. Right. You're controlling worlds. How can you not? And and moreover, you're saying, you know, I I know here's here's something that's right and it's good and it's well said and and this is what I believe and here it is in the New Yorker. Like just right. you know, you suck on that. And <laughs> <laughs> that takes a lot. Yeah, it takes a lot of ego. Right. A lot of really. Kind of I feel like gross. I've read these Facebook posts from writers occasionally. Here, suck on this. Yeah, indeed. Okay. Yeah, no, yeah. And I think it gets wrapped up in, in humility mm-hmm. a lot of the times, <laughs> you know, and this kind of false humility, and I'm definitely guilty of it. And and also, humility often comes as a as sort of a... Um, uh, humility is often genuine, and, and but it's also often a product of, of nervousness or fear or... You know, a, a, a fear, a, you know, because at least if at least if you fail, you're a good person when you were when you were doing it, or at least you look like an asshole. At least you're uh, uh. you're thanking other people as you're as you're doing it, and and you know, it's an it's a really interesting like promotion in the age of the internet. It's such a weird, strange thing. I I don't under I don't really know what what the deal is with it. Right, you can't farm it entirely out. Uh-huh. Not 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 our generation, anyway. You know, there's Jonathan Franzen and whatnot, but oh, it, uh, you have to you do have to. Have a lot of, and this is something that uh, I, I mean. I talk to a lot of fiction writers. This is something people are not often comfortable with when they're fiction writers. Is actively, I mean, don't get me wrong. I would say that most of them enjoy meeting their readers and talking to their readers. But yeah. sort of engaging with the public is, yeah. it's you, you. Maybe you need a bit of a personality defect to find that pleasurable, right? <laughs> maybe so, or to both find the act of writing pleasurable, which yeah. is a very like quiet personal like nerdy pursuit and then the act of like going out and talking about it and talking to people and putting yourself out there and and risking looking foolish and um but i think um i don't know i i uh, i had a friend who who would always claim that that being an introvert was a function of ego that you needed to work against which is an interesting idea i guess the distillation is you know if you're, if you're so, like, you're so concerned that people are judging you, it's, it's sort of this idea that people care so much about what you're going to say that you right. could really screw it up. such weight. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're going to go home and think about it for hours or days. Or... You can't disappoint your public. <laughs> Indeed. And I, I, I'm for sure guilty of overthinking in that in that way that but it's it's funny to think of it as a function of ego it's helped thinking of it that way has helped me kind of kind of chill out on it a little bit you know to think about my own experience even if somebody says something horrifyingly rude or thoughtless to me you know it's it's forgotten it's it's it it doesn't it doesn't matter that much it's somebody you know because uh, other people are capable of of empathy and also they don't care that much. Right, that's even more important to remember. <laughs> uh, you have one novel out, Threats, and you're working on another. Um, do you consider yourself primarily a short fiction writer? I I switch pretty strongly. Uh, I I mean it's it's just I, I think of it less as a um, less as a, a self branding. I'm thinking of myself as a cow now, but but uh, <laughs> and more of a. Um, of a mode of thinking in the same way that you know you can you might be in the mood to think of, to like 
do any kind of project, a home improvement project or cooking project. You might, you know, want to just like sear a steak or you might want to, um, you might want to make blackberry jam or in a process that takes like weeks. Who knows how long it takes to make jam? I have no idea. <laughs> One of these magazines that used to run Shirley Jackson stories yeah. probably could tell you how right to make that to, jam. Right next to a blackberry jam recipe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Indeed. And I want to get a sense of, because you mentioned, for example, plowing through the New Yorker short stories, finding the sexy parts at age 10. I mean, did you grow up with any type of reverence for the form of the short story? A lot of people, the ones who who are more into high school than we perhaps were, they, they, they gain a reverence for the short story because that's what's easy to teach. But did, did you get have that sense of this is... This is or the sense of like this is a really strong literary form, the short story, or did you not? I I I remember you know, coming across collections. I think they also my parents also had nine Salinger's nine stories on their shelf, and but whenever I would come across any collection, I would look for the shortest story, which I think a lot of people do, and uh, uh, test the waters that way. Yeah, yeah, see what it felt like, and. And, you know, reading the Bible, looking for the shortest passage of Song of Solomon, which, <laughs> phenomenal sure. sexy parts. I but was going to say, <laughs> we have that as well. But, but I guess I, I, I had a big awareness of, of looking at a, a really short piece and think, thinking of, like, the, the world that was there that was made and, and really just loving that, mm. you know. And, and that, and like Russell Edson and Shirley Jackson and Don Barclay, uh, were my earliest kind of reads on that. Um, where you could get just a, a paragraph story and then I said, oh wow, this is great. I'm going to read it to my roommate or I'm going to, you know, and going to, going to carry it around with me. And, and just this like, this nugget of a, of a, of a story. And I don't, I don't feel that way about, about novels. Hmm. You know? Now, a reader. Let's say a reader does that with Gutshot. Like off the top of my head, what's the shortest? I can't tell what the shortest story is. What? 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 What do they? Do you know what they turn to? Uh, it would be probably a contest, the one about the that that you mentioned about oh, it the. Oh, is that one? It might be that one. Yeah. So, the, did you ever have that sense in mind? Somebody might do that. They might open the book, go to the shortest story, find this one about people vying to display the grander and grander and grander uh, sort of demonstrations of grief in order to get their, their loved one back. I mean, have you, thought, have you envisioned this scenario? I not. <laughs> no, that's pretty cool to now. think of. I am now. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. I mean, I like it being, being representative. I like, um, I like the, the story Gutshot is also really small, and I, I think that it's it's pretty nice and 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 representative of of the larger. And somebody might well read that first, given that it's the title story. Chiller, yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, but I wonder. We do, I feel like we're missing out as readers sometimes on reading short stories in any order we want. People probably just go linearly, usually. And that's the way a short story book gets put together, I would imagine, unless you're Italo Calvino or something. You're, it's there. What kind of discussions are had about this? I mean, is, is it a discussion? Was it all on you to get the order correct? Or was it a lot of back and forth with a book like this or the other ones? Mm-hmm. It was on me, mm-hmm. uh, yes. Uh, for Gutshot, I, I came up with the entire order. For Museum of the Weird, I, I had... I, I asked people for their opinions on it. For AMPM, which is 120 short flash pieces, I they were some some was chronological, but I also rearranged them with you know showing them to people also. But with 
with Gutshot, I, I printed it all out. I put it all out. It's in, I believe, five sections. So you could read, you could read the section. You could read it all in order. You could read the sections in order, but the book out of order by sections. You could just pick and choose. And I think it's. I mean, one thing I like about short stories is that you you don't. Well, mine anyway is that you don't have to think of them in this kind of linear way. But I did present them in a way that I think is is. Uh, it makes sense, right. you know. I, I mean, I purposefully didn't start with like very visceral, <laughs> you know, stories. That's that's I I because I didn't want to because the first section which I I like is being kind of is a larger ideas right. kind of stories like posit philosophical posits almost. Um, I remember reading in another interview you saying how you were going to title the sections and one was going to be Viscera, but it was like, no, someone might turn to that and think, oh, what's, what, this is not the book for me. I mean, how much do you think about not putting off readers by giving a false impression? Well, I mean, I will say that it that I, I didn't title them more because I didn't want to seem like a pretentious asshole. That's uh, <laughs> a fair point, too. There are uh, many reasons to Right, right. Things. Although the first story in, in the section which I call Viscera internally is called viscera right. the story is called viscera so, so you know what you're getting yeah exactly and and i want a whole section of viscera <laughs> maybe but a right. story yeah i've run into enough people who who um kind of resent being surprised with with the grossness or the strangeness or the violence that mm. that i'd rather just have it be up front i mean that's one reason i love the cover of the of the book because it, you get this like mm-hmm. the neck the girl's neck this beautiful like medical illustration um uh, and and you know I I had a bookseller pick up the book once and say oh this looks terrible <laughs> you know <laughs> and she didn't know I had written it but okay. uh, yeah which That's was one of those moments you're like what am I gonna do what with do this do? moment I would have not said anything but I was about to go on stage so I had to be like listen it's okay I wrote this <laughs> <laughs> I know I know I know I know but and but fortunately she had enough of a of her own self conception to say like oh I don't like violent stuff I don't like visceral stuff I don't like triggering stuff and I was like. Excellent. Did you use the yeah. word triggering? Yeah. How like, often do you hear that word in the context of your work? Oh, occasionally. Yeah. Every now and then. Ever positively? No. Okay. Uh, no, no, no. So it's somehow rarely never triggering discussion or, <laughs> or thought or joy. Uh, no, but she, I was, I was, I was grateful to her for saying like, you know, it's not for me. And I said, awesome. Yeah, I appreciate that. Your your stuff you like is probably not for me. <laughs> right. You know, and then you parted ways, never to speak again. I'm I'm sure. Have you had discussions with? Uh, I'm thinking of you know threats, which is a novel, but the chapters are also short and I guess fairly fragmentary. I mean, what uh, do you have these discussions with publishers? Like, what do we really call your stuff? Are you there? There are short stories, but they're not necessarily of the form one expects a short story to be. You've got some novels, but they're different than novel. Like, what, do you have these conversations? Yeah, sure. The last time I really uh, went in on that kind of conversation was with AMPM, which was my first book, and which which you could call a, a linked collection of short stories. You could call it a, a novel in fragments. And and I very purposefully had 26 characters. Each of the characters purposefully has at least two connections with other characters. So no no story is is random. No story is an island, I guess. And they wanted to put stories on the front, and then they wanted to put a novel on the front, and we ultimately just put a book 
Yeah, uh, so that's the origin of the subtitle, a book. A book, yeah. And that's kind of a superstition in publishing, right, about short stories. Like, it's kind of, if you if you put out shorts, a short story book first, that's going to, like, hex you, right? Oh, really? I mean, I don't know, maybe. I've heard, I've heard that, that <laughs> I've I've heard heard publishers that. are reluctant to yeah. issue short story collection first. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's hard, just from the practical standpoint, is that it's just hard to sell them. And... Um, and I get that. And I, I still, um, I, I would have trouble selling a short story collection on its own. And it's just, you know, it's the market and the trends and, and it's just, it's strange and sad, but not the, not the saddest thing that's happened on a, on a Monday. <laughs> and the next book is a novel. So it is. That's some concession to the superstitions or realities of the market. But was it a concession? I mean, you wanted to write a novel, right? I did. And, and I, I I've tried to write novels just for the just for the practical sense of having a longer work and that never works. It only works when I actually want to want to spend time with the characters and the ideas and and you know cuz you're there for years. It's been 3 years on on the new one and and uh and if if it doesn't have enough weight like you know I I can't think of maybe one short story or two in gut shot could could extend to that, but I don't think so. You know, I, I, I usually come in writing a story saying like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make this as, as, as like comprehensive and thoughtful and deep in terms of, you know, uh, uh how, how much I look at the characters and the ideas. I'm going to do that as much as I can. And then I just scrape the bottom of the well. It's, you know, nothing personal. Right. It's like, Crash out. here we go. Well, <laughs> all right, that's it. You know, that's maybe 600 words or it's, or it's 4,500 or it's, or it's 60,000 or it's 110,000. Right. Yeah. You get surprised. Yeah. Every time. Right. Yeah. You don't, you don't know. No inkling of what length this is going to be. Very, to start. Well, very rarely. I mean, the more I write, the more I, uh, I say, okay, well, I want to write a story about a contest where the, where you know the, the grief is tested and and in thinking about it i say okay i could stretch that interminably maybe <laughs> uh like make a very thin concept novel out of it or um it's, it's been known to happen been, in the market happens every day um but but you know when i was thinking about it this is a this is a 550 word short story i'm gonna say and it was about that in the end does Los Angeles hold up at all to Tucson and weirdness level for you? I LA is very weird. Yes, LA is weird. And in what sense? Uh, you know, a couple of years ago they found a pair of human lungs on the street. Which street was that? I think I missed this news. <laughs> Since I was in South LA. Okay. Uh, yeah. Big area. I'd like to know the street. I'll look this up. You'd like to know the street <laughs> corner <laughs> precisely. Really, yeah, I really would like the street corner. Yeah, <laughs> just avoid that one. Yes. I picture it where they found the black dahlia, but I, but it wasn't. It wasn't. Did that. you did you research the story? I mean, did you look? I, you feel like I want to know? Is there? Is this a? I kept up on it. Yeah, and they were testing it to see. Okay, so it's not quite true. They were testing them to see if they were human lungs, and they found that they weren't. But they um, were lungs. And for for a grand month and a half, they thought they were human lungs. Oh, okay. um, but they were lungs. Uh, they 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 some some animals' lungs uh, managed to find their way out there somehow. Yeah, something as big as a human lung, which I don't know, maybe a maybe a cow. There's no way to know. Cow, cow lungs uh, somewhere on you know Normandy or wherever. It's yeah. still it's still surprising. <laughs> it's surprising. Yes, I mean it's it's genuinely strange. It's you know driving through LA and watching a man lasso a fire hydrant it's just you know he's just practicing his lassoing obviously for 
the occasion in which he will need to lasso. Incongruity is, is in rich abundance here. Yes, indeed. Indeed. And it's just part it's a it's a function of having so many people in 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 a place. I think that's that's kind of all there is to it. And uh, a constant influx of people as well. Yeah, okay, yeah, you get a move you you, know, you get people moving through, you get a weird um, people have uh, I, I, I found a, a striking level of ambition. I mean, from from you know cab drivers and and on up, you know, just everyone is. That ambition was not in Tucson. Oh no, I wouldn't say it's not in Tucson. It's m- more abundant here. I mean, you know, it's just harder to pay the rent here. <laughs> you have to you have to work hard. Uh, you have to, or you work hard to get lucky, or both, or be rich. <laughs> Finally, what what are your feelings about being only one letter away from the romance novelist Amelia Gray, G R E Y? Is there ever confusion? Do people come looking for her and find you? There's constant confusion. Yes, yes. I I get tagged sometimes. Uh, I've she and I talked a little bit. I wanted right. to interview her. Is that her real name? No. I thought it sounded like a pseudonym. With her name, your name sounds real. Uh, I don't know why they sound. I don't know why hers sounds fake and yours sounds real. For all I know, yours is a pseudonym. But no, it's real. Um, her, yeah, I, she gave an interview about it once, and she said it. She picked it because it sounded very Regency, which I agree. Sure. The G R E Y, you know, kind of anglifies it extra. Much. That's the name of our publisher too, right? Right. That's like the uh, Regency. Like that's oh, one of the. That's like they're like the Harlequin Junior Varsity. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure of the structure of the market of romance novels, but you've talked to her a I'm, little bit. Yeah, I wanted to interview her, and oh, I think gray on gray would be pretty would, cool. Is that going to happen? Oh, she's incredibly busy, and as and they so, tend to be, these yeah. sort of they have to keep going. They produce turning them out. Yeah. Have you read her books? I have not. You're not yeah. never tempted. Uh, I I somehow just haven't haven't done it. I really want to do. Um, there's one that always like a Duke to Die For is her Duke big one. It's pretty good. I mean, there's probably sexy parts in them. Absolutely. But would they be to your mind sexy parts, or is this a different? <laughs> is this a very different Amelia Gray sensibility? <laughs> it's a it's a bit like like um, Vaseline on the lens kind of sex, sexiness <laughs> that is a little a little odd. Um, not maybe not my taste, but I. I, I wonder. I wonder. I think about her a lot. I wonder if she thinks about me. She probably does. I mean, she. we won't hear her on this podcast, but hopefully you'll do some sort of recording with her. Wouldn't it be fun? I, I think is she based here? I think she's in Florida. Of course she is. I am on her email list. Oh, that's got to that's gotta be some scintillating dispatches on that. She just works hard. I mean, it's good to, like... You know, when I've been screwing around all morning and I get an email from Amelia Gray pu- pushing out another book, it's like, damn. Yeah, you look to her example where she's got one a year, two a year. Oh, yeah, at the very least, yeah. No. Think of the word count per year. Oh, my God, it's hard to even imagine. <laughs> yes, we could, all, we could all use a little more Amelia Gray in ourselves, right? <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> yeah. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall speaking today with Amelia G-R-A-Y, author of books like AMPM, Museum of the Weird, Threats, the new, sto- the new short story collection, Gutshot, and a new novel, historical fiction involving Greece. Don't want to give away too much, because I especially because I don't know about it. I won't give away too much. That's coming sometime in the future. Amelia, thanks so much. Thank you, Colin. You can keep up with me at colinmarshall.org or with the LARB at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks.